focus on headline. All right, let's take a look at what major issues are making the headlines today on Focus on Headline. For this, uh, joining us in the studio, we have our reporters Handan and Yusumin. Guys, welcome back. Good evening, sir. We are going to kick things off uh, with the top story in the past 24 hours now. Uh, South Korea and the U.S.'s response to North Korea's missile provocations that we talked about. Uh, we talked about a flurry of these short-range ballistic missiles. And then we saw the intermediate-range ballistic missile being fired by North Korea. Of course, we got a response from South Korea and the United States. The Allies firing ground-to-ground -ground, uh, missiles, conducting bomb drills, while North Korea keeps silent regarding the launch here. Sumin, start us off. Let's get the details of this. Yeah, sure. So just one day after North Korea's ballistic missile launch, South Korea and the United States have fired four Army Tactical Missile System missiles toward a mock target in waters east of the Korean Peninsula. Well, according to the videos released earlier today, the two nations respectively fired two ADASIM surface-to-surface missiles, a total of four ground-to-ground -ground missiles toward the eastern waters of the Korean Peninsula. Now, Seoul's Joint Chief of Staff announced earlier today that they precisely hit a mock target in the East Sea, which basically demonstrated the Allies' capabilities to deter further provocations from the North. Well, Seoul also noted that tests showed that Seoul and Washington are capable of striking North Korean launch sites precisely. Well, on Tuesday evening, as the first response from South Korea and the U.S. in under 24 hours against North Korea's provocations, the Allies also held a bombing drill, which involved four South Korean uh, F-15 Ks and four U.S. F-16 fighters. Well, the warplanes carried out a precision strike exercise yesterday, dropping two Joint Direct Attack Munition, or JDAM, and guided bombs on targets in the Yellow Sea. Well, amidst these military exercises from South Korea and the United States, there's this unusual response from North Korea regarding the latest launch. Well, in fact, all state media outlets, the official Korean Central News Agency, the Korean Central Television, and not to mention the Dodong Shimun, they are all staying mum. They are carrying zero reports regarding this, in line with its legal Kim Jong-un's inactivity. Uh, he has been staying out of public view for nearly a month. Well, North Korea has been usually releasing photos uh, the day after the launch until May. But, you know, at this point, silence after provocations or what they call strategic ambiguity seems to have settled as sort of a new rule or a new custom. That's right. Uh, this is a bit unusual, but uh, some experts were saying uh, this might be their way of saying, I mean, this is our just uh, usual drills, uh, nothing new here. Uh, we don't have to showcase any kind of new uh, weapons or anything like that. But uh, whether or not North Korea is going to respond to the latest uh, response, uh, I guess, tactical response from the South Korean side and the U.S. side, we'll have to see. Uh, also, the leaders of the United States and Japan holding phone talks just after North Korea launched its uh, intermediate range of ballistic missile. This, of course, as we mentioned, that missile was fired over uh, the air, uh, the Japanese airspace. Uh, this is to demonstrate their strong alliance against intensifying provocations from the north. Uh, Tan, tell us more about this. Right. U.S. President Joe Biden spoke with Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida on Tuesday, jointly condemning North Korea's missile test in the strongest terms, according to the White House. The leaders recognized the launch as a danger to the Japanese people as it flew over Japan this time and stressed that it's destabilizing the 
the region and is a clear violation of UN Security Council resolutions. Biden and Kishida also confirmed they would continue to closely coordinate their immediate and longer-term response bilaterally as well as trilaterally with South Korea and with the international community. The leaders discussed the importance of immediate return of Japanese citizens abducted by North Korea and vowed to continue every effort to limit the North's ability to support its unlawful ballistic missile and weapons of mass destruction programs. Talks between Biden and Kishida followed a series of phone calls between U.S., South Korean and Japanese officials, including the country's top diplomats and national security advisors. U.S. Defense Secretary Lloyd Austin also held phone talks with Japanese Defense Minister Yasukaz Hamada, reaffirming Washington's defense commitments to Japan and discussed countermeasures against continuing North Korean missile launches. The two agreed to hold further discussions on bilateral and trilateral security cooperation with South Korea and to continue efforts to denuclearize the Korean Peninsula. Uh, not to mention uh, Japanese Prime Minister Fumio Kishida expressing hopes to com communicate closely with South Korea on security issues. Uh, Don, it does look like North Korea's intermediate-range ballistic missile launches is sort of pulling Seoul and Tokyo a bit uh, closer in the area of security. That's right. After his talks with U.S. President Biden, Kishida, during a Q&A session with reporters, said that he hopes Japan would closely communicate with South Korea in the security sector. Mentioning about his talks with President Jun at the U.N. General Assembly in New York, he said that Japan wants to seek future-oriented relations with South Korea based on the 1965 Seoul-Tokyo Agreement. He added that they saw eye-to-eye -eye on the need to seek various diplomatic negotiations to resolve remaining issues. Then he went on to say that while he's looking at Japan's relations with South Korea in a bigger frame, uh, security issues are directly related to citizen safety and daily lives, so he wants to promote close communication with Seoul. So we can see that North Korea's first IRBM launch in eight months and also the first to fly over Japan in five years has prompted Japan to seek closer security ties with its neighbor. Kishida, marking his one-year office yesterday, also stressed the need to bolster U.S.-Japan and U.S.-Japan-South Korea trilateral cooperation to denuclearize North Korea. Kishida normally would place emphasis on U.S.-Japan cooperation, but we can see that South Korea was added, showing a slight difference from the past. Talks between defense chiefs of the two nations remain at a stalemate since bilateral relations have hit the lowest in decades. The last time defense ministers of Seoul and Tokyo met was in 2019, when then-defense minister Chung kyung do met with his counterpart Taro Kono at the ASEAN defense ministers meeting. Uh, moving on here, we're going to continue to talk about, uh, go back to North Korea's uh, ballistic missile launch uh, yesterday. Uh, South Korea and the United States had different observations regarding the launch in itself. And what's interesting is uh, yesterday on the program, uh, myself and uh, one of our uh, regular listeners, uh, Patrick Pierzer, he chimes in from Germany. Patrick, are you here today? Because this is a, a clue. Uh, this is a key right now. We were going, myself and Patrick were going back and forth on what kind of ballistic missile launch it was. Uh, mm. Patrick was saying that this was a long-range ballistic missile mm, okay. test. I was saying that it was intermediate-range ballistic missile because I'm citing, of course, what's being said South on the news. <laughs> we are getting something interesting here because it's, it's basically the gist of what myself and Patrick were talking about. 
Tell us more about this. I mean, how are they different? What could be the reason for how they're kind of uh, giving different observations? Of course, that's true. So analysis were markedly different because basically they designated the missiles distinctly, just like you and Patrick. Well, first on the South Korean side, South Korea's Joint Chief of Staff said that North Korea fired an IRBM, which is an intermediate range ballistic missile, while the White House labeled it as a long range ballistic missile, of course, strongly condemning the launch. South Korea Joint Chief of Staff announced that it flew about 4,500 kilometers at an altitude of 970 kilometers at Mach 17, assuming that the regime fired a nuclear-capable Hwasong-12. So, you know, to get a clearer picture of the missile classification system that South Korea used since 2020, according to the Defense White Paper published back in 2020, the South Korean military classifies North Korea's ballistic missiles into four different types. So uh, there's SRBM, the short-range ballistic yeah. missile, uh, 300 kilometers to 1,000 kilometers. MRBM, medium-range ballistic missiles, uh, 1,000 kilometers to 3,000 kilometers. And of course, IRBM, the intermediate-range ballistic missiles, which flies about 3,000 to 5,500. And of course, uh, ICBM, the intercontinental ballistic missiles, which could fly more than 5,500 kilometers. You know, um, U.S.'s Missile Defense Agency actually follows the same criteria as it categorized the Hwasong-12 that the North uh, Korea first fired back in 2017 as an IRBM, which flew above 4,500, not as an ICBM back in 2017. So, you know, as you could see, both countries follow the same classification system. And the reason why the United States did not name the launch as IRBM this time is not because that the two allies weren't on the same page, but it's because uh, one of the reasons could be because the intelligence officials were hesitant in providing the exact type of the launch while at the same time uh, looking deeper into the trajectories mm. and the speed and the missiles. And another possibility could be that the U.S. might have intentionally designated it as a long-range ballistic missile to underscore the intimidating striking range. Threat, yeah, yeah, because, you know, this kind of missiles that could fly uh, about 4,500 kilometers can strike not only the U.S. forces in Japan, but also Guam, uh, which is an air base for U.S. strategic assets. That is about 3,400 kilometers away from Pyongyang. So as we could see, the gravity of the threat is just really different from short-range or medium-range ballistic missiles, which could put both South Korea and Japan well into the striking distance. Well, some diplomatic sources are saying short-range or long-range ballistic missiles are not technical distinctions. They are saying that South Korea made the assessments based on some standards, and the United States seems to have referred to it as long distance to highlight that it flew further than before. So I, either way, you know, it shows that the U.S. is taking yeah, this yeah. even more seriously because, uh, one last thing, the Hwasong-12 type is estimated to have a maximum maximum range of 5,000 kilometers when fired at a normal angle. And some say it's somewhere between IRBM and ICBM. Yeah, okay. So uh, as long as it's a threat to uh, anything that's of U.S. assets like Guam, then they're going to consider this uh, an ICBM or, you know, long range. And, you know, because what I did yesterday, I, I honestly thought, because Patrick's like rarely 
wrong. Uh, I, I looked it up, Usually and everything, right. and even the American websites had in the, the same range that you were talking yeah. about: SRBM, mm -hmm. three hundred to one thousand; uh, MRBM, one thousand to three thousand; uh, the intermediate range ballistic missile we just talked about, three thousand to five thousand five hundred; ICBM, more than five thousand five. All the websites, everything that I searched, all these defense papers, all the defense websites were all saying this. Uh, so, but. I guess the wording of this, you're right, it, it is interesting that the U.S. has kind of uh, used a different wording for this just to show the threat that uh, Pyongyang is trying to show here. But uh, I don't know. Hey, man, Patrick, the one time you're not here, you, you're <laughs> trying to prove to you that this is actually an IC, uh, what is it, the IRBM here. Uh, but uh, nevertheless, uh, the, the geopolitical tension right now... Um, a lot of people are saying that with this latest uh, IRBM uh, from North Korea, the next thing could potentially, I don't know, maybe it could be an ICBM next, but others are basically saying that the next major provocation from the North is going to be a seventh, seventh nuclear, nuclear test. Yes. Uh, you know, we, yeah, whether or not they're going to just skip on the, the ICBM going to the nuclear test, so we Perhaps, don't know. Yeah. And then you have Putin, of course. Uh, whether you think he's still bluffing, uh, some people are saying that he's bluffing, others are saying he's not bluffing. But the fact is, anytime Putin mentions nuclear weapons, it is a little bit scary. Washington is, of course, concerned with all the threats, nuclear threats right now. And it does seem like Washington is moving very quickly against the threats from both sides. The U.S. is moving fast, both on diplomatic and military front, and this, many experts say, is because it assesses that the level of North Korea provocations are much higher than before. First of all, the U.S. National Security Council has released a statement just three hours after the North's IRBM launch, calling it a reckless and dangerous decision. It marked the first official statement by the National Security Council since North Korea ramped up missile launches since the end of last month. Then came the phone talks between Biden and Kishida, condemning the launch in the strongest terms. And like uh, Sumin reported, the U.S. also carried out joint airstrike drills with South Korea, dropping precision bombs just hours after the North's IRBM launch, while also conducting joint aerial and naval drills with Japan's self-defense forces in the East Sea involving fighter jets. And to the surprise of many, the USS Ronald Reagan that was all over the headlines last week will come back to the Korean Peninsula. According to the Joint Chiefs of Staff this afternoon, the U.S. aircraft carrier that left South Korea after four-day joint drills last week made a U-turn after North Korea's IRBM launch and headed back to the East Sea. The decision was made during the phone talks between South Korean and U.S. defense chiefs yesterday. The South Korean military said this is a very unusual event, which demonstrates the strong resolve of the South Korea-U.S. alliance to boost joint defense posture against North Korean threats. Not to mention, uh, the U.S. is also planning to take North Korea's uh, intermediate range ballistic missile launch to the U.N. Security Council here. Tell us more about this. Right. The U.S. has asked the U.N. Security Council to meet over North Korea's latest missile provocation on Wednesday, local time. But the U.S. is at odds with veto-wielding members, China and Russia. That's right. And so the UNSC meeting was unlikely to be convened. But just a few hours ago, spokesperson at the U.S. mission to U.N. Olivia Delton confirmed that the United States, Albania, France, Ireland, Norway and the United Kingdom have requested an open briefing in the U.N. Security Council to be held at 3 p.m. on Wednesday local time on North Korea's latest ballistic missile launch. 
South Korea is not a permanent member of the Security Council, but it'll also take part as a relevant party. South Korea and the U.S. and the Western allies are expected to send a strong message to North Korea. But the chances of passing another resolution against North Korea look slim to none. So the U.S. is grappling with nuclear threats from Pyongyang and Moscow amid prolonged war in Ukraine. But the UNSC is technically paralyzed at the moment as the Western powers in China and Russia remain sharply divided. The U.S. midterm elections coming up in November is another important factor for Biden that's driving the Biden administration to move more quickly against North Korea threats and possibly deter the North's seventh nuclear test. Yeah, and there's others actually saying that North Korea might actually test their seventh nuclear test uh, right before uh, the midterm elections uh, in the United States. After the party congress. After the, yeah, yeah, the exactly. Election, right? After the party congress, yeah. because they don't want to upset China. You, you, that's for sure. And so it's going to be between those mm. days, which is why uh, when the uh, South Korean intelligence agency, uh, when they gave you like a timeline on when the, the, yeah. the nuclear test might happen, uh, they gave that specific kind of timeline, right? So it's it's possible. But I mean, we, we said the same thing with like, you know, Fourth of July, Independence Day. Uh, you mm-hmm. know, we said they were going to probably do that. Uh, mm-hmm. There was a number of people who were going to say who said that as well. But I think North Korea knows that if they do indeed, even though they've tested this a number of times before, this next one, if they do, there's there's no turning back. Yeah. Uh, and so I'm sure North Korea is uh, kind of there. You know, they have to basically calculate everything or whether or not they're going to be able to. Uh, you know, withstand all the pressure that they're going to get afterwards. I'm sure there's going to be more sanctions as well. Uh, but nevertheless, um, let's we're going to talk about Russia once again. Uh, there's the United Nations General Assembly. Uh, they're going to be convening an urgent meeting to discuss Russia's declared annexation of the four regions of Ukraine. Uh, just last week, we talked about the, the four referendums. Uh, the Western countries and the leaders have called it a sham referendum. We mm-hmm. did, of course, see this happen before back in 2014 with Crimea. Uh, Sumit, nevertheless, uh, let's, let's get the latest on this. Yeah, so to discuss Russia's annexation of Ukrainian territory, UN General Assembly will meet on October the 10th for an emergency session. Well, that meeting was requested by Ukraine and Albania. It comes after Russia vetoed the UN Security Council resolution that condemns the Moscow-backed illegal referendums to annex parts of eastern Ukraine. Well, four members, of course, abstained, including Brazil, China, Gabon, and India. Well, after a new procedure, that was adopted by the UN General Assembly back in April as uh, any use of veto by any of the council's five permanent members trigger a meeting. And hence, the UN General Assembly's meeting that consisted of 193 members. So the members will discuss the annexation of four Ukrainian regions, Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia, and Kherson, in violation of the international law. Now, diplomatic sources said that, that an updated resolution was now being drafted by the European Union together with Ukraine and some other countries. Well, if the resolution is voted through the UN General Assembly, it would make clearer the degree of Moscow's isolation on the global stage, not to mention ratcheting up the level of diplomatic pressures in the international community. But unlike the UN Security Council resolutions, the resolution from the UN General Assembly is not legally binding. Mm. 
And, you know, another possible variable that could be could serve as some of a disturbance or annoyance from some developing countries is because multiple developing nations have now expressed concerns that Western powers, a lot of Western countries, are now too heavily focused on Ukraine. Well, earlier this year, the U.N. General Assembly passed three resolutions concerning Russia's invasion, with the third at the end of April revealing the uh, lasting division among some members of the international community. And hence, eyes are on whether this would be the case this time. Uh, in the meantime, things are moving very quickly in uh, Russia over the annexation of the four regions. The upper house of uh, Russia's parliament has approved incorporating the four Ukrainian regions into Russia after that uh, referendum. Uh, Tana, what's the latest on this? Russia's Federation Council has ratified annexation treaty of the four regions on Tuesday local time as the upper house of Russia's parliament voted unanimously in favor of absorbing Donetsk, Luhansk, Zaporizhia and Kherson. Now, all there's left is Putin's final signing for the annexation treaty to take effect. Putin signed a treaty of annexation with the heads of the four regions last Friday, just days after the staged referendum and following the Constitutional Court's decision on the constitutionality of the Russian Federation on Sunday, the lower house of Russia's parliament unanimously ratified the treaty yesterday. But things don't look so smooth on site, according to various foreign media outlets. Russia is failing to gain full control in all of the four regions. Ukrainian forces scored more gains in their counteroffensive across at least two fronts Monday, advancing in the very areas that Russia is trying to absorb and challenging Moscow's effort to engage fresh troops and its threats to defend incorporated areas by all means. In their latest breakthrough, Ukrainian forces penetrated Moscow's defenses in the strategic southern Kherson region, one of the four areas in Ukraine that Russia is in the process of annexing. Ukraine's advances have become so apparent that even Russian Defense Ministry spokesman Igor Konashenkov, who usually focuses on his military success and the enemy's losses, was forced to acknowledge it. And even the exact areas and borders to be absorbed by Russia are yet to be accurately drawn, with Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov saying that Donetsk and Luhansk are joining Russia with the same administrative borders that existed before a conflict erupted there between pro-Russian separatists and Ukrainian forces, but said that the borders of Zaporizhia and Kherson are still undecided. You know, the interesting thing with uh, Zaporizhia is uh, that, in my opinion, one of the reasons why Zaporizhia was included in there as well is because uh, the major power plant, the the nuclear power plant, is uh, located there, right? And the UN and a number of uh, countries have been trying to force the Russian forces to come out of that area uh, try to also set up a safe zone so that it, you know, there's no accidents happening in that area. But I think there is a, there's a very clear-cut reason why they wanted to take over uh, Zaporizhia. And uh, whether or not you believe the results of uh, the, the the referendum, it's up to you. But I mean, 99%, 98% in Luhansk and Donetsk and 80-something percent in those other two regions, Zaporizhia and Kharkiv. It, it's, it's, I mean. I guess some people will believe that, right? Uh, also, British media reporting about uh, Russia moving equipment from a nuclear weapons unit, which Kremlin strongly dismissed. Uh, give us a sense of the situation here, Sumin. 
Sure. Well, British newspaper The Times reported on Monday local time that a train operated by Russia's secretive nuclear division has reportedly left the country, apparently heading for Ukraine. Well, the train, which was spotted in central Russia, was reportedly linked to a division that is responsible for managing nuclear munitions, storage, maintenance, transport, and issuance to di- different units. Well, the article described this uh, that this is seen as, quote-unquote, a signal to Western powers. Well, as we know, Russia was preparing to demonstrate its willingness to wield nuclear weapons in its conflict with Ukraine. President Vladimir Putin has already manifested his willingness to use any kind of means to defend what he calls, quote-unquote, Russian territory. Well, the Kremlin, of course, resolutely responded to this article on Tuesday, saying that it did not want to take part in nuclear rhetoric from the West, singling out the Western media, Western politicians, and head of states as being engaged in a lot of exercises in nuclear rhetoric right now. Well, if you take a look at the uh, responses from the international community regarding this report from the Times, the NATO said that they have not observed changes in Russia's nuclear posture, but is staying vigilant regarding this issue. And Washington has also said that it has no indication that Moscow is preparing to use or imminently use nuclear weapons against Ukraine. I mean, that's I have to say, it, all that is one of the scariest divisions I've ever heard. Secretive nuclear division, <laughs> yeah. right? And you're right. I mean, it could be a bluff move, right? It could just be, I don't know, it could be a train that, that has nothing in it. It just, they want to show that, you know, they're really serious with this. Um, but that's the difficult thing is we don't know whether or not for sure uh, Putin is bluffing or he really means it. I mean, I'm one of those people that really think Putin is capable of using nuclear weapons. Uh, but I think... For sure, that's like the last resort for Putin. But is Russia at a point where they need to use their last resort option here? We're hope- certainly hoping uh, that's not the case here. Uh, nevertheless, uh, moving on, uh, coming back to South Korea, let's take a look at some domestic news here. Uh, after over 130 days of vacancy, South Korea finally has a new welfare minister. Uh, former senior finance ministry official Cho Gyu Hong has been appointed. And in his inaugural speech today, he made some uh, very much uh, awaited uh, promises here. Tan, let's get the details of this. Right. President Yoon formally appointed Cho Kyu-hong as the country's next Minister of Health and Welfare. The appointment came after two previous nominees withdrew their nominations over allegations of various irregularities. Korea has waited long enough, and the Parliamentary Committee on Health and Welfare unanimously approved Cho's nomination, saying he is qualified, considering his policy vision and motivation. Cho, an economic technocrat who previously served in key positions in the finance ministry, has served as the first vice health minister and the health ministry's acting chief since May. In his inaugural address today, the newly appointed minister pledged to seek reforms of the national pension system based on social consensus in a bid to achieve sustainable welfare. He said the reforms will establish a pension system that can coexist with different generations. He also promised to reinforce essential health care services under the national health insurance system uh, while ensuring its sustainability through financial management. He added his ministry will focus on shedding light on the welfare blind spots and enhancing welfare for the socially vulnerable by providing living allowance, emergency welfare and post-disaster health care support and utilizing big data 
to eliminate those blind spots and tighten the social safety net. Really glad that he mentioned the uh, the reform of the national pension system because I've mentioned this on the show before. But like the pension, like that the senior citizens uh, receive after retirement, uh, the bare minimum that they receive is something like. Uh, 250,000 to about 300,000 Korean won, I believe, mm-hmm. which is like, well, like $200 uh, per month is is what you're looking at here. And uh, I know this is a, an issue that can't be resolved in a single administration, but uh, I do hope that more ministers and more higher officials uh, to, do take a look at uh, the national pension system for the, the senior citizens. Uh, let's talk about inflation. Uh, consumer prices did rise, but at a slower pace for a second month in September. Uh, let's talk a little bit more about this. I mean, what do you have for us? Yeah, well, South Korea's consumer prices grew over 5%, but at a slower pace on year for the second consecutive month in September. Well, this is largely seen to be another sign to many people's belief that inflation may have peaked. According to Statistics Korea, consumer prices, which is obviously a key indicator of inflation, rose 5.6% last month from a year earlier, slowing from a 5.7% increase in August. Well, in July, consumer prices increased at the fastest pace in almost 24 years at 6.3%, so obviously the pace decelerated that last month. But consumer prices, meanwhile, continued to rise above 2%, which obviously is the central bank's inflation target over the medium term for the 18th straight month in September. Well, the increase in consumer prices slowed down because of the slowed increase in the price of oil and agricultural products like vegetables and fruits. Well, if you take a look at the consumer prices by sector, prices of agricultural, livestock, and fisheries goods went up 6.2% on year. In August, the prices climbed 7% on year. Well, when it comes to vegetable prices, it soared 22.1% on year in September, although they slowed from a 27.9% spike in August. Well, the f- official noted the possibility of the inflation having reached its peak as the growth of consumer prices was extremely high back in July. But, you know, because of the week one against a strong greenback, still adding further inflationary pressure, analysts are saying that the country's annual inflation will be at the low 5% range, which is similar to the BOK's inflation outlook for 2022 at 5.2%. Now, this is obviously the highest projection since it first introduced the inflation target system in 1998. Well, speaking of inflation, on a more positive note, U.S. President Joe Biden actually sent a letter to President Yoon song yeol expressing his willingness to continue frank and open-minded conversations on the IRA, the Inflation Reduction Act. Well, South Korea's presidential official said that the letter also says that he, Biden, is well aware of Yoon's concerns about the IRA and that he's confident in strengthening the two countries' alliance and key roles would be played in achieving the joint goal of the two countries. Yeah, again, I mean, the best-case scenario at this time is that uh, the Biden administration after the November midterm elections uh, may be after the elections are done and over with, that he'll make certain decisions on exemptions for like South Korea and things like that. Or I don't know, give him a grace period of three years because, again, some of these uh, companies uh, that are building plants already in the United States, it's going to take them about three years before productions uh, begin. Uh, We've also been uh, watching the stock markets uh, very carefully these days. Uh, South Korea's benchmark Cosby recovering to the 2,230 level as concerns eased over global tightening woes 
Tom, let's get the latest figures on this. Right. The Kospi opened the day around 40 points higher than the previous session's close at 22.48.85, arising to 22.53.93 during intraday trading. The increase was narrowed in the afternoon, but still managed to close at a relatively strong level at 22.15.22. Now, this has concerns eased on global monetary tightening after signs of economic slowdown were sensed, which led to hopes that the U.S. Federal Reserve could change its tightening stance faster than expected. Also, the fact that Australia's central bank raised its benchmark interest rate just by 25 basis points, contrary to the market expectations of half a percentage point, also raised hopes that major global banks may be slowing their rate hikes. And all of this as South Korean stocks tracked overnight rallies on Wall Street on solid demand for tech bargains. Tech shares also led the overall market gains today in Seoul as well. Overnight, the Dow Jones Industrial Average jumped 2.8% and the tech-heavy Nasdaq advanced 3.34% as U.S. Treasury yields fell and the latest U.S. jobs report raised hope that the Federal Reserve would back off aggressive monetary tightening sooner than expected. Kostak closed at 685.34, down by over 11 points from the previous session's close. You know what's really messed up? I'm looking at the Kospi and the Kostak right now. Uh, the Kospi and the Kostak, when it opened this morning, it spiked, right? Mm-hmm. And so usually what happens is when it spikes, the retail investors go all all in on this. And then so it, both the Kospi and the Kostak, everyone, the, the what is it, the foreign investors and the institutional investors, they all sold. They sold. Mm-hmm. And then the retail investors are going, oh, my goodness, it's going up. Let's buy. And then once it goes up, what happens? Uh, The foreign investors and the retail, uh, the institutionals, they all sell massively. And uh, next thing you know. plummeted. And then, you know, it's it's the retail investors that are basically uh, losing out on this uh, the whole time. But uh, we we have been talking more about how uh, the the foreign investors have been uh, really selling off a lot on the on the South Korean market because of the stronger U.S. dollar. But uh, it's a bear market, for sure. You know, sure. you should open up your own YouTube channel on stocks. Yeah. You, you know why I can't do that? Why? It's because I lost all my money on stocks. <laughs> I, that's, that's why. But some people like... Share your experience. Some people like seeing that. They, they like people seeing uh, people fail on the stocks and things like that. But uh, nevertheless, uh, guys, thank you very much for your reports uh, today. Please stay safe, and we'll see you guys again. Thank you. Thank you. You can listen to Korea Now with me, SJ Lee, by downloading the Arirang Radio application or tune in online by visiting www.arirangradio.com. So make sure you tune in Mondays through Fridays, 6 p.m. to 8 p.m. Korea time.